Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis. Hello, this is Scott Martis, and welcome to another episode of The Haunted Sea. Co-host Julie Wrench was not able to participate for this particular episode, but she'll be back. Our special guest tonight is Rowan Watson of the Loch Ness Mystery Blog Spot. Hello, Rowan. Hello, Scott. It's uh, it's an honor to have you on the show here. And I, I guess the first thing I would like to ask you is explain to us how you got into all this and when you did and how it happened, basically. Okay. Uh, well, it just goes back to my childhood. Uh, when I was a kid, I was... I like dinosaurs, I liked mysteries, I had books on UFOs, ghosts, paranormal stuff, and I had books on the Loch Ness Monster. I think I, I had, I bought Peter Costello's and Search for Lake Monsters, I had Tim Dinsdale's Loch Ness Monster, I had Tim Dinsdale's kids book, Story of Loch Ness Monster, I had Nicholas Mitchell's Story of Loch Ness. <coughs> The thing is, uh, it was a local phenomenon. I lived in Glasgow, which is about 150 miles south of Loch Ness. So there's not only a mystery, there's kind of, I felt, my mystery as a, a Scottish person. Uh, and I, I just latched on to it. Uh, as I was too young to remember the 1972 flipper photograph, but I was at school, I remember the Robert Rhines 1975 underwater photograph. That kind of excited my interest uh, at that time, and I, I basically never looked back. I, even at that time, I, I didn't think the head was a real head, but I, I was certainly taken by the, the, the long body picture. So that that bolsters your your belief in these things, and then I moved on. I went to university, made my first trips to Loch Ness, uh, cycling holidays with my camera, binoculars, met up with some folk. Uh, did some monster hunting, visited a famous sites. Uh, moving on, got a job, got married, had kids. Things kind of bottomed along at a low ebb because I was distracted by other things. But as we moved into the late 90s, as the internet began to blossom, as various discussion forums and websites began to be created, I, I, my interest began to renew. I'd be a, a a contributor to various forums like uh, the Nessie Chatterboard, which no longer exists at UK. and we, we, we moved on but as I read these things I began to realise the Nessie environment was very unlike the 1970s they were sceptical 
and uh, to that end we had websites which were anti-Nessie as well as pro but the antis outweighed the, the pros in my opinion and so I thought I'd take up the challenge and start my own blog website I began to look at old truths in my opinion but also began to look at what people were claiming were new truths and examined them challenged them except to those which are true in my opinion because it's all about opinions like this monster and from there it built up to a blog which is uh, now going on 700 articles and I'm working on my third book on the Loch Ness Monster that's where you find me today yeah um, well as you're well aware you know the best case scenario that we have to work with at this point is a circumstantial case you're dealing with ambiguous evidence that's open to more than one interpretation. <coughs> However, there seems to be the attitude among some people in the skeptical community that their interpretation is the only possible interpretation and if you disagree with them, there's something wrong with you. But, you know, I don't see it that way. I think it's open to interpretation you've got you've got two different models you've got one where there is no animal and that all this ambiguous circumstantial evidence each individual case can be quote explained away by some natural phenomenon but you've got like a thousand different explanations for all this ambiguous evidence that if you interpret it as looking like a strange animal, a good bit of it seems to hang together to support that hypothesis. So what are your yeah. thoughts on this? Well, I mean, uh, we are often classify cryptozoologists as akin to creationists. Uh, in fact, some skeptics think we're a danger to some people because we are promoting the wrong kind of thinking. Uh, that to me is not conducive to free speech or real skepticism. Yeah. So I call these guys pseudo-skeptics. That's my new way of approaching them. I don't want to put down real skeptics who are open-minded and uh, don't have an agenda. <coughs> they don't uh, approach a case and the, the result is already determined, predetermined. It's not a monster. That's not the way to approach these things. Yeah. But uh, I mean, it's quite easy to classify most explanations. You can approach a photo you can approach a typical eyewitness report and in my, my experience when people discuss these in a pseudo skeptic manner they they take the approach uh, well if it's not a misidentification then it's a hoax. And if it's not a hoax then it's a misidentification. So but in this tight loop we are kind of a feedback loop. It's a negative feedback loop where one feeds the other and it's a construct which no real monster sighting could po possibly get out of. You, know, you could have 10 witnesses see this monster 20 yards away and they'll just say it's a hoax, you know, because there's no physical evidence. They can, they can say what they like, but uh, as I'm concerned, Obviously, I agree, it's uh, circumstantial evidence, it's anecdotal evidence. But even photographs and films really 
boiled down to subjective interpretations, and I've seen a lot of that. Yeah, but a lot of a, a lot of a lot of these ambiguous ambiguous evidence. If you if you look at it through the eyes of well, okay, this is could be an unknown animal. If you look at it from that perspective, a lot of it appears to hold together. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah, there's a... I mean, take the eyewitness database for the Loch Ness Monster. So, last count, we're talking about maybe 1,800-plus accounts over 100-plus years. Uh, now, we have to admit there is noise in that database. There's Absolutely. Noise, there's noise in the data. There's, there's some hoaxes. There's, there are misidentifications, and there are people who have seen something strange, but they have not accurately described it due to distance or the fleetingness of its appearance. So we get a difficult problem just to start with, because yeah, we have to try and find a common thread, the long neck, the hump, the double hump, yeah, the tail, and we can come to some kind of ge generic morphology uh, we can come to some conclusions about uh, behaviour, uh, but the problem is people are seeing these things at long, even at 100 yards. Uh, you're not going to see everything. You're not. You may, you may not even be able to see the eyes. Well, part, smaller. It looks looks to me like part of the problem is even at the surface, the water in Loch Ness is so dark that you can't see something right below the surface because of the water clarity issue. Even if it's at the surface, you you can barely see down underneath the water to, to see the the lower half of the animal's body. Am I correct? Yeah, uh, um, disc white disc tests uh, probably if you lower the water disappear after sixteen feet. That's white with a high albedo, uh, but a dark grey monster just swimming across under your boat. Yeah. Uh, I think it's going to just blend in with the, the water just within a matter of a few feet. Yeah. You're not going to see it. it has to really be close to breaking the surface. But say you're on the shore and you're yeah. looking at it long ways and you're trying to look below the water from that angle, you're not going to see much is, is what I'm getting at. No, you'd have to be quite high up. Yeah, yeah. And there's You're not many high points in Loch Ness. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, I would say that you know, even even when it's on the surface, you know, if the monster pops up midway in the loch, you're already half a mile away from it. Mm -hmm. So, as a, as a creature just randomly pops up, and maybe does randomly pop up, uh, you're always you're at an immediate disadvantage. You really need this thing to come close to shore. Yeah. Get, to get some uh, <clears throat> morphological descriptions of that helps us try and uh, put some kind of classification on it. So it, there's, a, there's a disadvantage. That's why they tried to go underwater with the Academy of Applied Sciences. That's why people have turned to sonar. Because uh, surface watching is, uh, I wouldn't say it's a mug scheme, but it's a lottery. Yeah, and, and my my impression is that these things don't stay up very long at all. 
there might be up for 10, 20 seconds, and then it's over. Yeah, I think some, uh, a lot of them are like that. Um, some are, some are stay up for a few minutes. I think, I think the average is actually a few minutes. Yeah. Uh, well, my but, champ, my champ sighting lasted seconds. I was watching it through binoculars, but it was over in just a flash. You know. There was a reason for that as well. In my opinion, is that I don't think the creature has a reason to be the surface. Yeah, the water is its home. Yeah, I I suspect that even if it is a reptile, that it's developed methods of uh, obtaining oxygen directly from the water in addition to breathing air and it probably can stay underwater a lot longer than we assume. And if it's an amphibian or a fish then that problem basically disappears. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I, this, I, do, I can't see it's going to be an air primary lung. I can't see it could be a lung, primary lung uh, creature. Well, I, I think you've heard me talking about this uh, cloacal bursae respiration idea, right? Which the um, Australian freshwater turtles are doing. They basically turned their cloaca into a fish gill and are obtaining most of their oxygen directly from the water. And I would say it's not impossible that a plesiosaur could have developed that ability too. But we just don't know yet. Why it was still being a, you mean a primary for primary oxygen extraction? Yeah, well, I'm I'm saying that that they may have developed this same method as these turtles are using, and maybe getting a significant amount of oxygen directly from the water, like a fish. Yeah, well, there's plenty of oxygen in Loch Ness. Well, yeah, you've got the two two layers. The um, the the lower ones, the epilimnion, I think, or the the hypolimnion, I can't remember which one is which off the top of my head, but the lower level seems to stay at a constant temperature and have a surfeit of oxygen. Yep. Which would be to the advantage of some large animal that's normally stayed in deep water. You know, either breathing like a fish or you know, this underwater respiration idea like the turtles. So... I mean, as we, as we discuss uh, possible IDs for the monster, yeah, yeah, we're definitely it's good to speculate. Uh, see, I call it the jigsaw monster. So you kind of uh, you see, well, we need this to fulfil that feature, so we tackle on uh, you know uh, a, a form of gill or otherwise. Yeah, so that's good. I mean, evolution does allow that for that sort of thing. I mean, for the, the case of the uh, uh, was it the terrapins? Uh, we, we could, if we knew why we evolved that feature, it'd be good to try and apply that to the situation around Loch Ness mm-hmm. and beyond. I mean, why, why do they develop these things? Yeah. I mean, if, if, uh, if Ness is a plesiosaur, uh, they survived uh, the KT event. Obviously. Yeah. And I, I, think, um, I think you've heard me talk about my... Uh, reworked plesiosaur bones some of which are as young as the ice age yes well this might be a a possible missing fossil record for plesiosaurs after the kt extinctions we just don't know yet but it's something i'm still 
working on and developing, and hopefully at some point when I'm ready, I'll try to write an article and put this in the science literature. We'll see. It's, it's still in progress. So we can, we, we can, uh, we can speculate a lot. Cause oh, absolutely. Example, yeah. yeah. Could it be, for example, a <coughs> driven into deeper water by the KT event? Yeah. And that could have led to adaptions for non non lung oxygen extraction. Well, they know that they know that part of the marine extinction was the destruction of the food chain that depended on sunlight. Light, yes. Now they have discovered other types of food chains around hydrothermal vents way down underwater where the whole food chain has no connection to photosynthesis but is instead fed by hydrothermal vents, chemicals coming out from hydrothermal vents. So if something yeah. tried yeah. to survive the KT event and went down to where these hydrothermal vents were, that may have led to the development of better abilities for staying down deep in the water, you know? I don't know. Yeah, I, I would add that uh, you know, just just like there's bacteria which already have immunity to antibiotics, there's probably a group of plesiosaurs at that time which already had an inclination to go deeper, already had an inclination to forage around such uh, events and so on. So when their time came, a bit like the mammals flourished in the, after the dinosaurs went, that, that small niche flourished as well as the competition disappeared. Yeah. Lots of room for speculation. Absolutely. Now, am I right? You're inclined to think that the Loch Ness animals are some kind of amphibious fish or a fish-like amphibian. Is that correct? <coughs> yeah. yeah. You want to you wanna go into that? Explain your reasons for that? Yeah, it's, a, it's a pure speculation on my part, once again. I mean, because I don't accept uh, lung-using lung creatures uh, from indigenous, indigenous population, I uh, I go for gills or something else. Uh, the, the long neck, in my opinion, may not be uh, a normal neck with vertebrae. Uh, I think it could be just a, a muscular extension. Maybe like a proboscis, like an elephant's yes. trunk. <clears throat> yes, and possible that it does not even have eyes or a mouth. Yeah, I wouldn't want to speculate what eyes and the mouth are, but. Uh, it could just be an appendage of some other kind. Uh -huh. Non-sexual, I would add. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and I take the view, uh, it's got webbed feet. Ah. So I take more to maybe amphibious. Uh, many land sightings, people have described as creatures having webbed feet, not flippers. Uh, primarily three-toed, I would probably add or speculate. Ah. So sort, I think, of, uh, sort of like a yeah. seal. Seal, yeah, seals, seals are similar. Yeah. Hmm. I wouldn't call it a mammal. So, and I think it uh, has adapted to living around the edges of the loch where the food concentration is higher, especially around uh, during the salmon runs and things like that. I think the web feet facilitate it moving around underwater, non land. Uh, and the, the proboscis, whatever you want to call it, is basically it uses for a fast ambush. On fish. 
Mm. Plesiosaurs had a similar scheme where they'd uh, yeah. use their long necks to surprise fish and capture them. Yep. So, that's one theory. I'm also open, I have a second theory, that uh, it could be an itinerant creature, which is more in keeping with your kind of plesiosaur scenario or long neck seal. Yeah. Yeah. Those would not be indigenous. So you would yeah. you would think they're coming up the River Ness and going back yes. out? Hmm. Not every day, of course. But yeah, well, yeah. I I do know there are a few isolated reports of of people seeing unusual things on the River Ness. Yes, I've got eight recorded sightings. Now, there. if I remember yes. right, there's one where these guys were actually on the bridge. That's over the River Ness and saw something. Yeah, there's a guy called Hallam, I think it was around the mid-60s here. He and a friend were standing outside the YMCA and they saw, just basically saw a classic Nessie humping long neck, forging its way up the river towards the sea. Uh, and obviously they were dumbfounded. Uh, but the thing is, it was it, it was a time of heavy rain. So you deduce two things from that. Uh, first, uh, the water levels of the lock and the river would have risen. Yep. That's possibly facilitating a, an escape. And plus the heavy rain would have kept people indoors and taken a rise off the river. Hence the reason only these guys saw it. Now there's a, only, there's a fish where right there where the river enters Loch Ness, right? Say again? There's a fish where right where the river enters the lock. You've got a uh, dog garlic here. Yeah. So whatever's whatever's got to get in and out has to negotiate that too, right? No problem. Seals can do it. Well, yeah, we so, know seals can get in. They get in. They used to get into Lake Champlain back in the 1800s, and there was one tried to get into the Champlain Hudson Canal about two or three years ago. So, yeah, it's it's possible. If a seal can do it, then a, then a larger creature with webbed feet or I would, I would think, yeah, we already have a good indication that whatever Nessie is, it's amphibious. So yep. theoretically, it could get out and crawl around any obstructions. If it had to. Yeah, yeah. But, but like you were talking about, you know, times of flooding raise the water level of the river Ness and make it easier for something to get in and out. Yeah, it, uh, it just needs an opportunistic creature. Yeah, and you've got you've got the report from was it 1918 with the dolphins. Yeah, that's interesting. Yes. Yeah. I don't think that was dolphins. What do you think it was? Just some of the creatures. Ah. I mean, they okay. Never actually, they never actually caught these do so so called dolphins, and no and no one else corroborated the, the report. Ah. Uh, I'll just make dolphins to be seen all the time. Yeah. So, oh. I don't think they were dolphins or mm. porpoises. Hmm. So you think they were just nassies? Yep. All right. Um, your your first book was the Water Horses of of Loch Ness. Do you want to discuss some of the origins and subject matter of that book? Of course. Yeah. Uh, as the book says, before Nessie, there was Anishak. 
which is the garlic one for Nessie. Uh, stories of a creature, strange creature, in Loch Ness go back centuries. Uh, and when the Nessie story broke the headlines in 1933, uh, it was pretty quickly uh, we had people reminding readers uh, that St. Columba had an encounter with a beast uh, at the adjoining River Ness. Uh, uh, a who was a bishop on the Isle of Iona, where uh, Columba had set up a spiritual centre, he wrote the hagiography of Columba's life. Now, we also have to be careful with uh, the literal truth of the hagiography, because a hagiography is not a zoological treatise. It's uh, a book uh, designed to glorify the saint and glorify his god. So these stories were basically uh, written to show the power the saint had over nature. Because in this story, uh, a person had been killed while crossing the River Ness by a creature the locals feared. Uh, St. Columba told uh, one of his followers, Luke Lee Wakakum, I think, to cross over in peace. Uh, the monster heard the waters troubling and rushed towards the hapless man, whereupon St. Columba raised his cross and said to the creature, in the name of God, go no further. At which point the creature reversed and fled at great speed. That's the original story. Uh, we've actually have some other Columbus stories uh, around the water Kelpie. Well, I know Tony Hansworth mentioned one on his uh, website that's different from the classic one that everybody quotes. He said that uh, the monks at Fort Augustus Abbey had a library and they showed him a Latin manuscript, possibly over a thousand years old, which related another story to do with uh, St. Columba the creature. Unfortunately, that book's now disappeared. How often have we heard that story? So, uh, that's true. And I'd also point out that uh, St. Columba met another monster in his uh, hagiography, and this was on the western coastline of Scotland, near Iona. Ah. Now, in, in the translation, it's called a whale, and he averted danger from this whale. Now, when people read this story, they're quite happy to accept that he met a large sea creature uh, off the western coast of Scotland. Uh, but when it comes to Loch Ness, uh, they do not want to talk about it. So that was there uh, about 6th century, but we do not really get any more references to the creature for another thousand years. Ah. Now the reason for that is because, well, the highlands are a wilderness and no one was really writing anything apart from monks. Yeah. Uh, writing wasn't common. Books were even less common. Yep. Uh, well, I so think I think a lot of of the story got filled in by the historian David Murray Rose. If you want to explain all the stuff he came up with. Yeah, David Murray Rose is a, a historian, and he. Uh, had some things to say in his uh, letters to the Scotsman. Uh, I would say 
He, had, he wrote several letters, to give you some background, David Murray was, was a, a kind of genealogist, he specialised in Scottish Highland history from around the 17th, 18th century, uh, so he'd write on things like the Battle of Culloden in 1745, uh, he lived in Nairn, which was uh, a few miles east of Inverness, and he, he, he spent a lot of time making notes, perusing old records. We're going back a hundred years now when he was active. And he would uh, talk to locals, he would talk to people about uh, oral history, traditions, to build upon uh, the written records. And he, he would uh, talk about uh, the monster being talked about in the 1880s. He also talked about it being seen uh, before the First World War. Uh, but the things that interest me most about David Murray was, uh, was that he wrote a long letter to the Scotsman on the 20th of October 1933, uh, which he talks about uh, old books and references to the monster from the 1730s, where he talks about the Loch Ness water kelpie is having a long neck and like a camel, but his mouth was in the, halfway down his neck. Uh, he also talked about uh, the monster uh, being seen in Loch Ness uh, lately, uh, quoted a book from the late 19th century. The story was about Fraser of Glenvachy who had slain, slain the last dragon in Scotland. And he quotes an unknown book, it says, but no one has managed to slay the monster of Loch Ness lately seen. Yeah, so I think that was supposed to be in 1520. And that was just that was the story of Fraser of Glenvachy, not the not Loch Ness monster. Yeah, but that's so, what David Murray Rose was using to date. The account, the mention of Nessie, was that it happened around the same time. Yeah, he said... Said that the story of Fraser Glenvachy's fight with a dragon dates back to 1520. Yeah, and we, we do we do have uh, we do find we do we have found manuscripts from that time which do relate the story. There's no mention of Loch Ness in them, so I surmise that he is talking about a book written between then 1933 and 1520 which picks up the story of Fraser Glenvachy but appends in the stories about the monster being seen in Loch Ness. So I don't think 1520 could be taken as the actual date. Mm. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not uh, saying it's proven beyond doubt. He mentions various <coughs> things. He, he talks about sharks, he talks about hippopotamuses, he talks about crocodiles in Loch Ness. Yeah. He's, a, he's, a mine, he's a mine of information. Well... He was vindicated about some article about the dragon of Dornoch. Can you explain that? Okay. Well, for example, uh, Ronald Benz, who's a well-known critic of Loch Ness Monster, he wrote a book in the 80s called Loch Ness Mystery Solved. He mentioned Murray Rose and these uh, references to Loch Ness. And he says, well, we can't rely on these. He hasn't been the primary sources and so on. So he, he, he dumps them. But I, I, I think Murray Rose's CV is pretty good. So when we had this article pop up about four years ago uh, on a website called Dr. Beachcombing, 
he had dug up this story of the Donald Dagon from my book, The Water Horse of Loch Ness. And he he went over it, and he, he I think the doctor, Beachcombing, uh, maybe a historian, he kind of cast doubt on the story, because Murray Rose didn't state his sources once again. Uh, Murray Rose had written a letter, maybe to the Scotsman again, relating this story. So as it happened, uh, he received an email from a reader. He said, well, Dr. D uh, David Murray Rose is actually correct. And he told uh, Dr. Beachcombe that the source of the Donut Dragon story is from a, a journal in 1888, I think it was, certainly in the 1880s. So Dr. Beachcombe had to backtrack and offer a, an apology of sorts to David Murray Rose. So I, I took from that that David Murray Rose did get his sources correct. He wasn't just making this up. And, and the case, we could have, if that guy hadn't replied to Dr. Beachcombe about the 1880s reference, we'd just be saying, oh, David Murray Rose is making it up again. But he hadn't. He was telling the truth about what he'd read. And I apply it to these Loch Ness stories as well. The trouble is, uh, our mission, my mission, somebody's mission is to go and find these original sources. Well, I, I've tried myself. What's that? I said I've tried myself to find yeah, these. Well, I don't know how many books are now being digitized, but online, 100 million? Yeah. So There's a lot of stuff I've, on I've, Google Books. Yeah, I've, I've, but when I did research for the book, my book in 2011, I couldn't find anything. Yeah, I actually went to the National Archive in Edinburgh, which has... David Murray Rose's uh, collection there of all his works, all his notes and so on and I did start to try and leaf through these uh, handwritten notes trying to find these uh, references I tell you I spent one day there uh, I think I'd gone half blind looking at his uh, scroll, scroll of a writing Oh, I know what it's like man you sit there all day in the library looking at microfilm and microfish, you eventually get a headache. No typewriters, no word processors. These guys just wrote down what they, they saw, yeah? Yeah. And the, what's even worse was it was down in pencil. It was beginning to fade away yeah. after 100 years. So I thought I'd need a whole week off just to attack this stuff. So maybe one day if I retire, I'll just book a week at this place and uh, roll my ship sleeves up. Well now, now we're, li we're limited to internet searches. One question I wanted to ask you, and this seems to be the matter of controversy, is the Kelpie and the Water Horse considered to be the same entity, or are we talking about two separate folkloric entities? Or are they synonyms for the same creature? No, they're different. <clears throat> they're being confused. Uh, the thing is, uh, as the Industrial Revolution was pushing its way into Scotland and uh, parts of the Highland were beginning to industrialise and move away from an agrarian, agrarian uh, culture, uh, anthropologists came up from England and parts of Scotland to question locals, gather their oral traditions and put them down in writing. And for that, and for that, I'm very thankful because these oral stories could have disappeared forever. 
they wrote them down in books uh, but at times they got their terms confused and mixed up uh, possibly was a mis- a mistranslation from the Gaelic to the English because a lot of people didn't speak English uh, so the water kelpie is a river creature uh, it's a creature more likely to live in rivers or maybe mill ponds sometimes people would throw in uh, handfuls of grain or money to appease the, the water kelpie in the mill pond so they wouldn't disturb the, the mill grinder the water mill uh, they're normally associated with fast water. Uh, so people who are walking across uh, forts without bridges would often be warned to, of the kelpie who could grab them and drag them underwater. Now the water horse is a, a loch phenomenon. Uh, it's the animal, supernatural animal, uh, in terms of mythology, which uh, basically living in the loch, but for some strange reason it came out of the water onto land and shapeshifted into a normal horse, uh, beautifully bridled, saddled, ready for the weary traveller to jump on it and then it would stick to the water horse and he'd dive back into the loch and eat its victim. Uh, now people say, <clears throat> well it's just a legend, uh, to scare off, keep kids away from the water. Now I'd say to that, well, if it's trying to keep scare kids away from the water, then why is it coming onto land? Because land is not water. So I think there's a, an echo of land sightings in these stories. Probably. And also, yeah. You know I'd what? also add that the water bull is a third classification of mythological creature. The water bull was more docile. Uh, it, didn't, it didn't attack humans. It didn't eat them. In fact, sometimes it was... Per- portrayed as a friend of man. Yeah, and in fact there's an old saying uh, in Loch Ness that water bulls may be seen at foyers but they do not go as far as the fall of foyers. And that, that was a, a, le- a legend related even recently by Father Gregor Brucey before Augustus in the 70s. Oh I know who he is. I've seen him on uh, several documentaries talking about his sighting of the next standing up out of the water. Yeah, you, you know, so explain something to me, Scott. Yeah. He set up a discussion there. Gregory Brucey, I think 71, saw this long pole-like object sticking out the water. Yep. About six feet long. How do we explain that morphologically? Well, I would think, you know, if it's something along the lines of a plesiosaur, I would say that would obviously be the long neck and a head standing up out of the water. Totally erect and straight? Probably, yes. Uh, there's a lot of debate about how much vertical neck flexibility plesiosaurs had. One thing people don't consider is that if a plesiosaur was hanging it with its body vertically in the water, with yeah. the neck standing up at that angle, holding its neck up would be no problem if it's keeping its body yeah, erect through flipper movement. Now you said that, I remember seeing a painting of a group of plesiosaurs with their necks sticking up in the water like uh, like a, a forest of trees. Yeah, oh yeah, I've right. seen that painting, yeah. I think that the artist was Conway, I can't remember, but uh, that, that did strike me as a possible scenario for pole-like sightings. Oh, absolutely. Uh, no flexibility is required there, yeah, just point Tim, upwards. Tim Dinsdale had a sighting like that too, I think in 1970. 
did. He uh, he was over he was over his boat near the Foyers power station, and at this point he hadn't seen the creature for ten years. Yeah, imagine how he must have felt. But he got his moment once again. This this thing just popped out of the water. It was there for seconds and popped down again. It appeared again further out. Uh, and when he noted where it happened in relation to the shoreline and uh, later on he saw some swans uh, moving around the area and based on their size he decided this thing was over six foot high in the water yeah he was convinced it was a monster now they had to say father brucey had a friend that was an organ player named roger Pugh who was either there when Brucey had his sighting or had a separate sighting. You know about that one? Yeah, he was he was uh, with Gregor Brucey on uh, the boat near the pier where the, the Abbey used to have a, a boathouse, yeah, Moorings, and there was a pier, which is still there, it's now a restaurant, the boathouse restaurant is called, and they were standing on the pier, and he says this guy, he was an organist at Westminster Abbey, I think, saw it as well. Unfortunately, I've never been able to find him. I've seen him on yes. a couple of documentaries. Um, but that was back in like the 80s and 90s. Um, moving on, uh, I wanted to mention that there may be a connection to the water horse from Lake Champlain. Oh, yeah. There are a set of powder horns that were made in the 17 late 1750s or early 1760s from the Lake Champlain era, area. They all seem to have this creature on them that was originally interpreted as being either a dragon or a griffin. But an expert, an expert on... This is an ancient. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like on an old colonial era powder horn. But all these powder horns have this creature that looks like a horse with wings but it's reptilian. It appears to have scales and and teeth like an alligator. Very oddball-looking creature. Originally, they were interpreted by folklorists as representing either griffins or dragons. But a powder horn expert said, no, these are what they call hell horses or a thestral. And it's basically a monster that's like a reptilian pegasus with wings, but it's described as being a, a reptilian horse. And Ted Holliday, in one of his books, made a connection between the hell horse and the water horse, saying they're the same creature. And he got this information from some kind of Scandinavian folklore book. So I find right. this all very interesting. So, so if all these interpretations are potentially correct then these powder horns are depicting water horses from the Lake oh, Champlain have, region. Yeah. Yeah, yeah we got we got uh, there's another mythological creature in Scotland called the Boobery. Yep, I've heard of it, a bird like creature. And there's a, there's some legends state that the water horse could change into a boobery and vice versa. Ah. So there's your connection. Yeah, and the boobery's got a long neck. Too. Right. Well, one was allegedly seen in Loch Arcake, 
the mid 19th century. Which is near Loch Marar. Yes, uh, unless it's kind of between them. I don't think they're connected in any real way. Yeah. That is a legend. But you um, know, uh, sportsmen used to come up from England. You know, we're saying that monster hunters only existed in the 20th century, but they existed in the 19th century because English middle-class gentlemen were so convinced by these Kelpie water horse stories being told by their local guides in the Highlands that they brought their shotguns with them to try and bag one of these creatures. And they go on expeditions to try and find them. Boating expeditions or whatever. So that's how seriously some of them took it. So, how do you think the um, Celtic beast ties into all this? You know, the the Celtic beast, the odd-looking creature that's been found on some rock carvings? The Pictish beast. Pictish beast, that's what I meant. Yeah. Sorry about that. I think that's, that's not, obviously not long necked. Yeah. I think it might be a dolphin, myself. So, I, I don't... I personally don't give it much, I don't connect it much cryptozoologically. I do connect other stone carvings on Pictish stones. Uh, there's, a, there's a stone, the Arbolerno stone, and I think it's Forfarshire, which depicts some, it depicts two equine entities with hooves, but with long mare horse tails, so basically mare horses. Yes, I, I've got a picture of that somewhere. So you get two of them looking at each other on this picture stone. They look too long to be dolphins, they're too, serpent, they're too serpentine. Uh, they have the, the, equi the equine look to their heads, water horses. I think they're water horses. I don't know what inspired the, the sculpt, the carvers to do them, but I'm more convinced by that sort of thing. Now, Ted Holliday mentioned a place with stone carvings called Balmacken. Do you know anything about that? Oh, yes. Um, that's the Drumbuey stone. Um, that, that was mentioned in Holiday's book, The Great Orm of Loch Ness. Now, ba Balmacken Estate used to be owned uh, by uh, a lord, a lord of the manor, and he had the stone in his estate. It was actually dug up in the 19th century by a farmer working the land and it was, uh, I'm not sure where they moved it to, they may have moved it to his estate and, they, and it lay there for a long time. The Ted Holiday in the 60s went to the derelict Balmacken estate which had been abandoned and was hacking his way through the undergrowth trying to find these stones. But unknown to him, the the stone had been recovered for archaeological purposes and moved to Edinburgh. So I contacted Edinburgh Naturalist, uh, the Museum of Scotland at Edinburgh, and they said, yep, we've got it, it's in storage. So the Trumbury stone is only a couple of miles away from where I am right now speaking to you. Oh, now, cool. I did ask, I did ask to see it. Uh, they said, well, it's a bit fragile. But they did send me a photograph, a modern photograph of it, and it's Fairly good neck, it's uh, got a big crack, it may have split. Uh, but the, obviously what Holiday was alluded to on that stone was the serpent figure. Yep, uh, there's a picture a of it in his book. Yeah, he, he, he tried to connect that with the Loch Ness Monster. 
and Nicholas Witchell tried to do the same in his book uh, six years later. Now, the problem is, uh, if you do a survey of Scottish Pictish symbol stones, uh, this snake symbol appears everywhere across the Highlands, especially in the northeast uh, towards Aberdeen. The influence is that, well, it's found at Loch Ness, but it's been found at other places which are nowhere near water. So the inference is it's more likely to just be a snake, yeah. an adder, mm -hmm. a viper. So I, I don't think there's any connection there with the monster. But it was fun at the time. Yeah. What about uh, the story of Gregor McGregor and Willex the Warlock? Oh, yes. Gregor McGregor, also, well, Willis the Warlock, uh, lived in the late 18th century. He was a diviner. He he basically was a fortune teller. He basically helped people divine problems. You know, why was there milk going sour or why was the crops failing? He would suggest uh, superstitious solutions to that. Uh, but the, what he used to uh, divine the problems or adjudicate was a Kelpie, what he called a Kelpie bridle. And when one when one uh, of these anthrop Victorian anthropologists asked him how he came by this object, he said, "Well, it belonged to the Kelpie of Loch Ness." He called it a Kelpie. It's a water horse. So, and when asked how the Kelpie managed to be dispossessed of this uh, bridle. He said his ancestor, Gregor McGregor, met the water horse on the Sloch Road, which is near the A9. That is kind of halfway between Loch Ness and where he was in Tomatil. Uh, so this Kelpie was along, this Loch Ness Kelpie was a long way from home. And Gregor McGregor uh, attacked the Kelpie, uh, his sword cut off the bridle. And he took it from the creature and kept it, passed it on through the generations. Now, this Kelpie being a, a supernatural creature, this bridle had supernatural powers. Possibly seeing the future and receive uh, special knowledge. So, uh, when you actually look at the picture of the, the bridle itself, it, as one Victorian said, it bears not the slightest resemblance to a horse bridle. It looks more like a, a, a kind of curved stock. So we have no idea how he came by it. He also claimed to have a, a stone stolen from a mermaid, which, uh, which if you looked through a hole, they could see in the future. So he, he claimed that the Loch Ness Kelpie inhabited three lochs. Uh, Loch Ness was its uh, main residence, but apparently the Loch Ness Kelpie had two holiday homes. Uh, one was in uh, Loch Spiney, which is near uh, Elgin or Nairn. Very small loch. Well, you know yeah. what's you know what's weird? They have yeah. found they have found plesiosaur bones at Elgin. There you go. Yeah, must be true. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, these are from the Mesozoic, but that's yeah, one place in Scotland that, uh, they have found plesiosaur bones. Oh yeah, well, he also claimed that this Kelpie lived in another lock called Lock and Dorb, 
it's not a it's a very small loch so that, that's his story my 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 interest is uh, where this Kelpie bridle is now yeah, I'm sure it's still around well how how old is the photograph of it it's a drawing oh I I, I thought I had seen a photograph myself maybe I'm wrong but no I've, I've I've got a book on uh, Willocks, the Warlock, uh, a, a, a special paper on just devoted to him. And uh, it's traced to his ancestors, it's traced to descendants, 1940s, but uh, the bride, the, the bridal was actually seen uh, 200 years ago before photography was invented. Ah. So it could still be around. Uh, we could argue that's the only physical remnant of the Loch Ness Monster, if you want to push it that far. Is his, is his grave still around? Well, I'm sure it is, yeah. Probably somewhere in the Loch Ness area, I would think. He died in the 1830s, then when his courier carried his obituary, so he's quite well known to deserve an obituary. He lived in the Strathspey area. Ah. Further east. I'm not even sure he ever went near Loch Ness. He's probably buried around there somewhere. Uh, he lived in a place called Tomintool, huh. which is uh, more in the Grampians, in the Grampian Mountains area. <coughs> so, so the lock, the Inverness Courier carried a story about a monster on the Isle of Lewis in 1852. Have you looked into that much? Yeah, well, I, I think it was a sea serpent. Uh, it was described as looking like a was that again a stack a stacked uh, a stack of seaweed or something peat stack yeah. peat stack sorry yeah and it so, said it had two big fins too now when you hear this about a peat stack the first thing that comes into my mind is oh that's a big hump one way to interpret it well peat stacks are if you've seen films of people cutting peat in Isla Lewis, uh, basically peat stacks are long rows of piles of peat. So it's more a horizontal phenomenon. Ah, I just, phenomenon. I just in my mind was imagining like a big pile, you know, of stuff piled up, like so a they, hump. They, they, they cut slices from the peat bog and uh, lay them on uh, in sl kind of slabs. Well, they uh, use them. They like, use them for fires, right? For like burning fires in a fireplace. Yeah. They, they dry them out and they use them just like coal. Yeah. So it could have been a hot sighting. Yeah, that that's what I near, thought. That was near Lurebost. Yeah. Yeah. And then there's the, the oddball article about two water horses in Loch Ness in 1855, I think, or is it 1852? 1852, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that was a joke. That was a joke. Yeah. Now apparently a, a a pony was crossing the loch on a hot day. Yeah. And uh, but people didn't realise that. They were they were saying it was the water horse. Some people were saying it was a sea serpent. And others were just joking. Now it just turned out to be a misidentification. It was a, a pony. But the, the article was important because it points to a an ongoing belief in the existence of a water horse in Loch Ness. Yes. So to that end, it's an important article. And the next big thing 
is the article from 1868. Now, I'll let you explain about that if you want to. Yeah, I regard that as uh, important. Now, uh, people, it's of 1868, October, and a story surfaced that people had found a strange-looking carcass or near Abriacan, I think it was. So, speculation arose as to what this might be. Some said it was a uh, water horse that died and washed ashore. And because water horses were regarded with uh, negative superstition, the appearance of a water kelpie was kind of like an omen. We know the word monster means omen in Latin, monstrum. So it was thought to portend bad things. <coughs> And the author of the article goes on further to say that some credulous natives aver that there's a, a great fish in Habit's Loch uh, of similar size. So when I, when I tell that by similar size, he means uh, this carcass was six feet long. People claim to see something six feet long breaking the surface loch. Now, people might say, well, what's the big deal? Uh, Maybe it's just a sturgeon. The sturgeons were seen all the time around that area. They were caught regularly. So, because they called them credulous or ignorant, ignorant superstitious natives, what they told him implied this was no ordinary fish. He asked he would have just accepted it was a big sturgeon or something. So, as it turned out, uh, it was a hoax. This is the first Nessie hoax. Uh, it turns out that uh, some uh, drifters, some sailors, I caught a bottlenose dolphin off the Murray Firth. It died, and for a joke, to stir up these uh, Kelpie believers, they dumped it on the shore. So it was a, 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 the first Nacy hoax. The, the significant thing about it, though, is that it's a clear indication that there was a tradition of some kind of strange fish or animal in Loch Ness in 1868. Yeah, you do. The newspapers say that all these uh, Highland folklore books, they all mention the Loch Ness water horse. It gets the biggest number of mentions in the Victorian literature. Uh, it's just, it was the number one water horse as far as the literature was concerned. Well, that was the main so, point of your book, right? Is to establish that there was a long tradition going back into antiquity of something yeah. odd in Loch Ness. And I believe, I believe, I believe that you accomplished your mission with that book. It was a very yeah, well written book, and I Mr. like Frank. it. Yeah. Mister Frank, mid seventeenth century, wrote a book called Northern Memoirs. As a travel log of his activities, he was an angler, a fisherman. So he said that Loch Ness uh, had a reputation for a floating island. Yeah, yeah. And that's and, not uh, a reference to Cherry Island either. No. This is one that moved about. Uh, Loch Lomond had a reputation, but he said that he said there was general talk about Loch Lomond, but he said there was more intense talk about the floating island Loch Ness. So it appeared to be something happened that had piqued people's interests. Now, I said that the 1868 uh, dead dolphin was the first Nessie hoax, but Richard Frank was the first Nessie skeptic. Because he, he said, well, it's just a vegetable mat. So uh, he made a bull rushes. 
mm. but he's just wrong about that because Vettelmo bats are next are even rarer than Nessie sightings at Loch Ness. So I, yeah, I know guess, that. Maurice Burton got stuck on that and <clears throat> kept trying to push it, and it just doesn't work, really. Well, this is why I call uh, pseudo skepticism. You know, a skeptic or so called skeptic gets an idea in his head, he ignores all the data, ignores everything, he just, he's got a pet theory, and he just sticks, it, sticks to it to the well, you know, there was a lot of weird things happened in 1960, all around the same time. One minute, Maurice Burton is talking about plesiosaurs, and then he does a 180, and Dennis Tucker gets fired from the British Museum, and Dinsdale apparently borrowed Maurice Burton's camera to film his film on, or so I've been told. So there was a lot of weird things going on in the background that we probably will never know about. And I think there's probably a connection to all of them. Well, 1960 was when things began to hot up for Nessie again after uh, fallow years, 40s, 50s. So Morris Burton could have been the number one spokesman for Nessie. But he he turned face. So he, I think, is purely down to the peer pressure from his academic colleagues. And I, I think he was pushed out of his job at the British Natural History Museum. So because he lost his job over this, he basically took it out on Nessie and became uh, an enemy of the Loch Ness Monster. Well, Dennis Tucker, yeah. Dennis Tucker stuck by his guns all the way till his death in Dennis 2009. Tucker. Yeah. Now, whether Tucker lost his job over Nessie, we're not sure. There's, People claimed he was just a difficult man to get on with, so and he used to take a gun into the museum. So I don't know, uh, but certainly the Loch, I believe he stated the Loch Ness monster was the Elasmosaurus. Yep. Uh, so he that didn't help his case. Uh, Nessie is a person non grata with uh, academia. So if you want to get ahead in the academic world, you don't talk about Nessie as a viable. Uh, large creature yet to be discovered but Dennis Tucker stuck his guns he he, he helped out with uh, various expeditions yep uh, Morris Burton went the opposite direction he became the first he wrote the first skeptical book yeah, so his, his his fate was sealed in that, that sense the so 1960 was a pivotal year yeah Moving on from 1868, the next thing you get is the Ian Milne incident in 1930. You want to talk about that? Sure. Yeah, well, we talk about uh, 1933 being the year Nessie hit the headlines, uh, May 2nd, 1933. I'll probably come back to that. But actually, uh, another story had made the headlines three years before, in July. Ian, Ian Milne and was fishing off Tor Point with two friends and his attention he saw a loud splash he saw a spray being flung into the air he then noticed a bow, a bow wave moving at considerable speed and he estimated the speed was 14 to 15 knots way faster than a, a boat yeah, and then it slowly submerged and disappeared and he made out uh, two humps amongst the bow wave 
uh, and Gould, Rupert Gould interviewed him four years later and uh, confirmed and ratified uh, the Gito story. I mean, but this, this story made actually made it into international newspapers in 1930. I've seen it in the Hartford Chronicle, which I think is either in America or Canada, uh, ran this story about Creature in Loch Ness three years before the thing became really took off. So that's interesting. That The people try to poo-poo that and say that. Alex Campbell again, but uh, I think no. Ronald Benz was the one that started that conspiracy idea. Well, they can't prove it. No, no. A lot of pseudo sketchy stuff is just speculation. I've actually <laughs> seen some people suggest that Ian Milne was really Alex Campbell, and that's not accurate. There, were, Dick Rayner told me he met Ian Milne. So that's proof right there that Ian Milne was not a pseudonym, uh, uh, an alias of Alex Campbell. And the other thing is, uh, people poo-poo newspaper reports to say, oh, they just jazz it up, they don't describe things properly, the real thing is probably a non-event. But Rupert, Rupert Gould did us, did us a big favour, because he went to Loch Ness, he personally interviewed Ian Milne and a load of other witnesses, and he corroborated the accuracy of these newspaper reports. So when you hear people saying that you can't rely on newspaper reports, don't believe them. So, historically, the the real accepted beginning of the Nessie story for most people is the Mackay sighting by Aldi right. Mackay. So if you want to explain that to people. Yep, yeah, well... 2nd of May 1933 was when uh, the story broke. As it turned out, uh, our friend Alex Campbell, who was a water bailiff, was also a correspondent for the Inverness Courier. He ran this story about something being seen uh, by Aldi Mackay. Her husband ran the Drum and Drocket Hotel, which is now the Loch Ness Centre, where Adrian Shrine uh, runs his exhibition. And it was about, we think, April 1933, and they saw what they thought were two ducks fighting. Uh, but then a big wake uh, became visible and headed off towards our duty pier. And when in the midst of this wave, they saw two large black columns moving in line. Yeah. And they hold the whole object, if you include the length of the two hops, is about 20 feet long. <coughs> And then it it rise, submerging it back up again, and then it just suddenly sank with a considerable commotion. We waited around for a bit, and never appeared again. So uh, this this story was run in uh, in this courier. Uh, Alex Campbell was anonymous, uh, but uh, his story talked about a a, a wheel-like object uh, turning in the water. Now once again, uh, this is poo-pooed as just journalistic, uh, artistic license. Uh, but once again, Rupert T. Gould uh, tracked down Aldi Mackay in November of that year, interviewed her, because she was only when it saw it. Her husband only saw the commotion of what wanted to something. And once again, that inaccuracy in 
in the original newspaper report and that goes down as the official first sighting of a Loch Ness monster the one that starts the genre in the modern day legend as you want me to call it yeah now the, the next one that pops out into my mind there were several women at a place called the Outside Tea House that saw some kind of head and neck up out of the water with some kind of horn-like appendages coming out from the side of the neck? Yeah. I'm trying to remember that one. Now, was that historically maybe the second big sighting after the Mackay sighting? Uh, I'm not sure. We have other good ones there. We got Mackay's April, around April. Yeah. Uh, we had the, the sighting by Alex Shaw. Okay, the name uh, sounds familiar, but I can't remember the details of the account. Do you want to uh, uh, tell Alex about Shaw it? Alex Shaw saw a, a single hump. He had a single hump. Uh, ah. Just, just uh, a month later, a few weeks later. Uh, we had, because not all these were reported at the time. Yeah. Uh, something yeah. like. Yeah, that's a G. Simpson's outside, which may be the one you're referring to. Yeah, a Mr. J. Simpson was at the Halfway House, which you mentioned, which is, became the, a youth hostel. I know there was a couple of women saw it at the same siding, too. They were looking out yeah, of a right. window, I think, in the upstairs, watching it out a window. Yeah, I think that was later. I think that was later. Huh. Yeah, I've other said... I mean, the other main sightings were, for example, uh, Commander Meeklum. Yes, I'm familiar with his. He also saw a sea serpent in the Thames. Did he know? I didn't know that. Yeah, that's in Peter Costello's book. Right. But yeah, Meeklum saw that hump next to an island, and he could t see the skin texture on it. Yeah, he said it had a, a nobly appearance. Yep, yep. Yeah. And yeah, it was... His drawing or reconstructions of it pretty much resemble what you think a plesiosaur back would look like, too. Yeah, why not? It's certainly consistent with it. Well, now, yeah, we've, we've got to talk about the Spicer's sighting, which is a major, oh, yeah. important one. Spicer. Yep, it's a... Uh, well, we see the Mackay sighting kind of kicked off... Uh, local interest, but I would say the Spicer sighting kicked off national interest and propagated out internationally. Uh, it all began with a, a letter uh, Mr. Spicer wrote to the Inverness Courier in August of 1933, and uh, it was such an incredulous letter that the editor of the Courier thought it, uh, thought it uh, fit that he needed to balance the story with some kind of uh, natural explanation <coughs> so I mean he just basically produced uh, the letter verbatim uh, Mr. Spicer said he saw something like a prehistoric monster on the road between those and foyer crossing the road about 50 yards ahead of him uh, a length about 60 feet that appeared to be carrying something like a lamb uh, and that undulated neck thing was only in view for I guess less than 10 seconds uh, and it was gone. They got to the point where this uh, 
hump-like creature with a writhing neck uh, had disappeared. They saw basically crushed bracken in the area of the undergrowth that led to the loch shore. Now, they so came went, across some guy on a bicycle, didn't they, and tell him about it? They went, they went down to foyers to ask about this strange sight there. Now, as I believe they didn't know anything about the Loch Ness Monster, other people argue they did, but they certainly did when, at the time he wrote his letter. Uh, they, they told him uh, about the monster. But a William, William McCulloch, uh, who was described as a workman, uh, was told about this at the, uh, when they came and he got on his bike and cycled to the place and he told Loch Ness researchers 30 years later, he was still alive, that when he got there, he, looked, he, he, he said the bright undergrowth looked as if a steamroller had gone through it. So uh, they, that's what I call corroboration. Why would so a London, what would be the motivation of a London tailor to make up a story like that? What's he got to gain? You know, it doesn't make sense. No, in some sense, he came to regret it because uh, of the attention it got. This is this is often uh, the burden of the eyewitness. Uh, people attack them, call them idiots. Yeah, uh, yeah, absolutely. You know, he, didn't, he didn't even describe something in the water. He just went straight to land. Uh, somebody was going to make it up. <laughs> They're not going to describe something crossing the road. Yeah, I mean, if, so, uh, if he had... If he had been invested in some kind of hotel in Loch Ness or something, I might could see some motivation, but it doesn't make any sense, you know, to say that, say oh, he I'll made this up for some reason, you know? No, he was a, he was a owner of a Savile Row tailor shop, a well-to-do shop in the London city centre, so he has no motivation. Yeah, exactly, you know. He didn't so. even know about it. Yeah. So obviously this is a, a marquee sighting. Oh, I would think so. It's so it's the it's first one that gives you the plesiosaurish image of Nessie, as far as yep. I can tell. Um, this is yep. This is where the long neck appears. Yeah. Um, this would lead us into a discussion about your second book. Sure. About the Loch Ness land sightings, which is called "The Monster right. Comes Ashore." And probably yes. next to the Spicer case, the most infamous one would be Arthur Grant. So yep. if you want to talk about the Arthur Grant sighting, I'll let you discuss that. Yeah, well, it's uh, uh, a controversial case. Uh, no doubt about it. He, he, this was about January the 5th, 1934. So we're talking about four or five months later he's coming back from Inverness yeah, about one in the morning heading south and he on his motorbicycle so as he approached uh, a point near the Briaken, uh, he saw this creature to the right on, a, on, a, on a, the land side of the road and coming out of the shadows and he said there was two bounds this large creature uh, crossed the road and into the water and when he, when he got off he, newspapers claimed he nearly hit it his motorbike and when he got off obviously stunned he went down the shore it was gone so uh, he went back to 
his house, uh, Paul Mady house, um, near Drumland Rocket, uh, woke up his brother and immediately made a sketch of what he saw, which is very important because of memory feeding. So uh, the next day it was reported to the Scotsman, I think, and uh, this, this was a sensational case. And especially in the light of the, uh, the big game hunter Bernard Weatherall, Marmaduke Weatherall, sorry, was there uh, at the lock uh, for the Daily Mail investigating the site, uh, the Loch Ness Monster. So the interesting thing is uh, Weatherall turns up and the Daily Mail you know, pushes the story because that's why he's there. Uh, he investigates it and they claim to find tracks uh, on the lock side on the beach. Well, there were some Edinburgh students, college students, that described yeah. finding a, a trail, a trace of the animal, which I think is yeah, very important. And Alex Hay and some of his pals there from uh, Edinburgh Art College, they weren't zoologists, but uh, Mr. Hay was, he was uh, a fellow of the Royal Scottish Zoological Society, where Edinburgh Zoo is based. And he went along there and made some studies. They did, they did quite thorough, I thought, in the way they approached it. They wrote a lot, a long letter to the Scotsman. Yeah, they'd met with Grant and uh, discussed it. They measured some tracks they believed were left by the creature, yeah, which were quite big, in my opinion. Yeah, but the interesting thing is uh, the plaster casts were made. Now, I assume that this was done by Marmaduke Weatherall, because he'd made casts of the infamous hippo prints on the other side lock. Now, when those were sent off to the Naturalist Museum, they said that these are the spores of a rhinoceros, maybe a white rhinoceros. So, of course, the problem was, uh, because Marmaduke Weatherall's other uh, track plastic has to be identified as a female hippopotamus and it was all put down to a local wag with a, a hippo stand though as we know it turned out to be Marmaduke Weather itself because of that track fiasco uh, the tracks of Arthur Grant have been tarred with the same brush guilt by association Yeah, I, think yeah. I do not believe these tracks are the same thing <coughs> Well, there are there are two or three uh, rumors regarding Arthur Grant that are put forward to, to try to debunk his sighting, but they're all secondhand hearsay, and they're all totally different. Yeah, I mean, um, Alex, Alex Menzi was a local guy. He worked at a garage. He claimed he overheard uh, Arthur Grant phoning somebody, and his words were, they've swallowed it. Uh, implying that they made it up and the press fell for the outline of sinker. Uh, now the trouble with that is now we know that pseudo-skeptics go on about how people forget things so easily and get things wrong when they try to recount eyewitness testimony. <coughs> now Alex Menzies <coughs> excuse me, told this story to Dick Rayner or someone else 40 years later 40. It worked. I would immediately question something 
that they claimed is accurate 40 years later. And the other problem is, the first mention we see of this conversation between Dick Rayner and Alec Menzies was in 2012, I think, when Dick Rayner mentioned it on a, I think it was cryptozoology.com forum. <coughs> Another 40 years later. Yeah, and Tony Harmsworth tells a totally different story about that Arthur Grant made it up as a joke to his mother. Which is a totally different story. And you don't have a source on that or anything. No, it's just all hearsay, speculation, third-hand accounts. I mean, if I was going to tell my mom I'd crash my motorbike, I wouldn't be using the Loch Ness Monster. I'd be seeing a deer cross the road in front of me and cause me to swell. Yeah, I mean, I mean, to take these claims as seriously as as monster encounters. I mean, you know, we should all be held to the same standard of yeah. evidence, and that's like secondhand, thirdhand rumors, hearsay. There's, you know, there's three levels of uh, what you might call evidence: there's empirical facts. There's deductions based on other facts, and there's speculation. And I wouldn't even call this a speculation, it's just made-up stuff. Yeah. So I think Arthur Grant is in his, is, is telling the truth. Uh, I relate a story in the book where uh, an, an Andrew Gray emailed me and said his father uh, saw Arthur, uh, Arthur Grant at uh, veterinary college where he was, and all the students were around him mocking him, but he was sticking to his story. So, and he also uh, gave a lecture to uh, a group of policemen. Yeah, he made an official statement to police. So that's how, that's how seriously he took it. Yeah. Um, I, do, I just wish I knew where he was. I mean, I don't think he's alive now. He might, I wouldn't think so, but he, he obviously he, he lives was, somewhere in the Loch Ness area. I would imagine he's probably got relatives that are still around, you know. Be definitely no, worth be looking. Be a hundred years old now. Yeah, it would definitely be worth your time to look into it, you know. Well, I, I try to. I mean, his his family home is now a bed and breakfast, a hotel. I emailed him, and they they knew nothing about it. They knew nothing about Arthur Grant. So. Yeah. What a dead ends research. One one land sighting that I found intriguing in your book is the one where the guy likened it to a crocodile and he also said it had wing-like objects on his back? Oh yeah, Robert Henderson. That's a very interesting one. That actually came to me from the guys who wrote the, the Loch Ness Seal book. From Rob Corns and Gary yep. Cunningham. He, he sent me the clipping. <clears throat> He was doing his research and he found this local Linlithgow. Linlithgow is a small town outside Edinburgh. Robert Henderson or someone had a connection with that and they ran the story. It never got national attention, so that's why it disappeared underwater. Uh, and this happened in 1925, I think, around that time. It's so around the same time as the Alfred Cruikshank season. Uh, Which was a very so odd one. We, yeah, we so should talk good. about Crookshank because it's kind of an outlier. Yeah, but uh, Robert Henson and his, his friend, they saw this 
what he described as a gigantic seal with flaps on its back, uh, like wings, as you see, which I kind of equate to like the George Spicer flap on its its back. Well, you know what I you know what I think that could be in both cases. I think yeah. it could be the flippers, the front flippers, sticking up in the air as the animal's moving. Yeah, I, I wish they'd done a drawing because I'm trying to visualize this. Well, wasn't there? Didn't he describe some feature as resembling an alligator or a crocodile, if I remember right? The same guy. Yeah, that's what I'm talking about, this Henderson guy. He described it as a lot, like a gigantic seal. seal. Yeah, but I was thinking he described part of it as resembling a crocodile oh, or an alligator. Yeah, the tail, yeah, yeah. Yeah, the tail, there you go. Yeah. 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 So it's like a hybrid of some sort. Well, Plesiosaurus had a somewhat longish tail, and... They know now that they had scales, so I don't know. Actually, I've got, is it Robert Corns, you said? Yeah. I've just got his book, so I haven't checked if he mentioned that setting. Because, it, because Robert Henderson describes it as like a, a giant seal, that, that's the kind of thing he, that he would be interested in, because he, 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 he thinks that Loch Ness Monster could be a, a giant form of sea lion or something. Yep, yep, the long neck seal idea, yeah. So maybe if folks get that book, they might find more information about this. It's a very good book. I, I wrote a book review on Amazon. Um, yes, I saw. I liked it. Um, so let's talk about Alfred Crookshank's sighting, which is very different from your typical messy sighting. <coughs> yeah, uh, this, this appeared in Tim Dinsdale's first book, first edition, 1961. Uh, Crookshank had written, written to Dinsdale after his uh, film had gone nationwide. He's he going back to 1923, and he, Alfred Crookshank, was a, a chauffeur. So pick, he was on his way from Inverness to pick up a client at Speaking Bridge, which was a fair ride. So it's about four or five in the morning. He's uh, taking the bend near the halfway house, which we mentioned earlier. Uh, but I don't think the halfway house had been built then. Uh, I think it was added on when the road was improved. So back then it was pretty much a remote area. And as, as he took the bend of that road, uh, I visited the spot myself, uh, he saw this green khaki large creature already progressing across the road. It let out a bark of some description, which may appeal to sea lion enthusiasts. And uh, the, main, the interesting thing is, uh, it didn't seem to have a long neck. It seemed to have a head, a, a head that's more akin to a, a hippopotamus or a, a crocodile, even. Had a long tail. Uh, <coughs> it didn't have flippers, it seemed to be a, more suggestive of uh, wet feet, feet again. So uh, it, was, it was getting dark, it was obviously pitch dark uh, at that time. Uh, he only saw it through his headlights and in those days the headlights ran off the, the magneto which depended on the car moving so as he slowed down uh, the headlights began to fade but he saw enough <coughs> to see this creature already progressing across the road making it swear so Tim, Tim Dinsdale is a bit nonplussed by this because there's no long neck he speculates well maybe then the neck was pointing towards Crookshank and uh, 
that a foreshortening effect or speculation that the neck was already across the road into vegetation so all we really saw was the base of the neck being misinterpreted as a, a full head <coughs> so it's a one of these statistical outliers I actually uh, found Cruikshank's nephew a few years back uh, he still lives in the area uh, he, he told me how Arthur Cruikshank is dead now obviously uh, he used to sit, sit him on his knee and tell him well, allegedly, allegedly he made a sketch for Tim Dinsdale, and it's probably somewhere in his archives. Well, there's that, an issue there because uh, all, all Tim's stuff is here in the family home. So it's, it's not being donated to any institution or national archive. Uh, I've asked Angus and Simon Dinsdale to maybe look out this drawing for me uh, but um, it's really it's hard work I just uh, who is I don't, I'm, not, I'm who not sure how well organised archive is or it's just in boxes in the attic I don't know always well preserved though. I've heard Dr. Bauer talk about yeah. somebody named Wendy Densdale is that his daughter or his widow that, that's his widow so technically Wendy is uh, the owner of his archive ah. so so I guess if you want to get to see the archive you, you, you go through Wendy Dinsdale I'm not sure where they live now but uh, I love to go through those notes I love to just have one day amongst the, the Tim Dinsdale's archives you know, who oh. knows what yeah. we might find I think Nick Witchell still has a bunch of archives too that he got from Constance White. <coughs> yeah, I think the laptop somewhere safe, safe from Nessie researchers. <laughs> um, when I when I look at uh, Crookshank's sighting at face value, the thing that pops into my head is some kind of large prehistoric salamander-like amphibian, something along the lines of. Iriops or Mastodonsaurus. Yeah, well. So I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Suggestion there's two species there. Maybe Steve Plambeck's right. Maybe it is a tail. I don't know, but it's certainly an oddball sighting. Well, a giant salamander has a flatter head, I think. Yeah. Um, so the creature, your interpretation of Hugh Gray's photograph. Oh, yes. comes up with a morphology something like that if you consider what is normally considered the tail to be a head with an open mouth you want to talk about Hugh Gray's photo and sighting yeah well that's the first photograph 12th of November 1933 Hugh Gray was a, a worker at the aluminium plant which is now defunct he'd been to church Sunday morning and he off we went as was his wont for a morning walk with his camera <coughs> presumably brought his camera just in case something happened so he went over to the Gene Fraser Memorial <coughs> yeah, we're pretty sure what it is because yeah, Tim's, Tim Dinsdale and Ted Holliday pinpointed for us in their books yeah, and he saw this he said there was tremendous commotion and this animal arose vertically into the water. Uh, 
for several minutes. He saw for several minutes. He shot off four frames in his Kodak Brownie. Uh, only one came out, uh, which is a famous picture. Uh, there was a bit of thrashing about, he said. At what point in the site and this thrashing about happened, we're not sure because the photograph he got showed no real commotion. So we assume that the commotion happened after he took his first photograph. And uh, for years, uh, people analysing the picture thought that the, the long structure to the left was the long neck of the monster. Uh, now the trouble was uh, the photograph that was doing the rounds in various books was pretty awful. It was over-contrasted and poor reproduction. Uh, but Morris Burton, uh, to his credit, found uh, a better image called the Heron Allen image, which is two positive contacts made from the original negative. Uh, you can, when I got a hold of these uh, images digitally, uh, it was two two images side by side, half half two half ones. So you could together, you get a much better image of monster. And when you look closely at that picture, you'll see to the right something that looks like a fish-like head with an open mouth. And we're pretty sure it's there because it's casting a reflection on the water, uh, consistent with the same shape, conical. And uh, if you look at original reports at the time which discussed this picture, some of them mentioned this head-like structure to the right. In fact, some people say it's clearly visible. Unfortunately, since then, that's been lost. But uh, to help my daughter, I, I, I noticed this image again in 2011 and published an article, which is actually my Hugh Gray picture article I wrote. Is a sec has the second greatest number of hits on the internet. So, uh, well, one important thing about the Gray photograph is you see the indication of the bases of two appendages along the flank of the animal, which along is... the water line. Yeah, which seems to be, if it's a picture of a Nessie, seems to be a good indication that Nessie has a set of front appendages, rear appendages, and a tail. Correct. Yeah. So, uh, they look a bit circular, spherical, but a bit indistinct because they uh, the, the, the image is distinct for two reasons. Uh, first is uh, a bit, a lot of water being sprayed around by the creature, uh, possibly being discharged by uh, means other than thrashing because the creature has been reported as surfing a uh, quote like a, a boiling foam. Which yes. I don't believe is yes, consistent I've, with I've heard a lot of you know reports of eyeball um, boilings on the surface of Loch Ness that seem yeah. to stun me a lot of people, even some of the skeptics. I think that's got to do with gas exchange that allows the vertical sinking and vertical uh, motion. So uh, I would say the appendages, you can't really see from the picture what they are, but the spraying of water, there's also camera shake, uh, which is not surprising considering the what was going on. So, yeah. but it's a pretty good picture. Uh, certainly, sure certainly one of the more interesting images from Loch Ness that has 
defied debunking, I think, up to this point. Um, one yep. question I wanted to ask you, and I'll let you just explain it yourself, is why do you find the hoax allegations against the surgeon's photo compelling? Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I wrote about this a while back, uh, talking about levels of evidence there. As I said, you have three levels of evidence, well, uh, logic. You have uh, the empirical evidence. Uh, we know the sun rises in the east because we can see it happening, so that's what you call empirical evidence. Uh, other facts uh, can be deductions, you know. We can't prove them directly, but we can prove them indirectly from other facts. For example, uh, Frank Serrell uh, took a picture in 76 uh, of something with a long neck, uh, which basically lined up with a brontosaurus postcard. So the obvious deduction is it's fake. Then we have speculation, which is just based on uh, not facts, maybe more on general facts rather than facts specific to the case. So the case of the surgeon's photograph, uh, I would say we have empirical evidence in the form of two confessions. So the first confession was from Ian Wetherill, who was the son of Marmaduke Wetherill, who he said faked photograph. This was an article in 1975, uh, written to the Telegraph newspaper. Uh, that was picked up by Martin Boyd, and David Martin. They traced Christian Sperling, who from whom they extracted a second confession. So I would say two confessions are adequate in my eyes to uh, judge the photograph to be a hoax. Uh, if it had just been one confession, I'd be more dubious. But because we have two independent persons 20 years apart uh, saying this is a hoax, then <clears throat> that's good enough for me. Well, you know, some you people know <laughs> some people could argue that this was simply a story cooked up by Christian Sperling and Ian Weatherell to resurrect the reputation of their father. Just in the motive is to whether well, they're implying their father holds the picture. Yeah. And there's also the question that we know for a fact that historically the the camera and the film that Wilson brought in to Oxton's was a plate camera. Yeah. And Ian Witherell claimed that it was a 35 millimeter Leica camera, I believe. And that's something, right. you, and, and to explain that problem away, they've come up with this made up story about Chambers re-photographing the original picture. So I don't know. I just find a lot of holes in the story, but I respect yeah, your- two, two cameras <clears throat> involved. Yeah, I respect it's your right to, to, you know, believe what, what you want to believe. I. I personally have an open mind, and there's also the second photograph, too, which hasn't that's, been explained away. That's the flying ointment, because I think that's adequately explained. Well, while we have a little time, tell us about the new book coming out about the Nessie pictures. Okay, uh, this book is called Photographs of Loch Ness Monster, 
subtitled the good, the bad, and the ugly. Now, the reason I subtitled it is because if I said just photographs of Loch Ness Monster as a title, people would say, well, hang on, not all these photographs of Loch Ness Monster. So, uh, no, I dishonest title, so I subtitled the good, the bad, and the ugly. So the good are the, pic, the photographs I will defend. The bad are the hoaxes, Frank Serrell, Anthony Shields. The ugly are, for want of a better term, misidentifications, yeah, things that are just bow waves. So uh, I've got about 40 photographs, images to discuss. Based. Now I'd add here that there's no motion pictures in this book, it's just still images, so we don't have Dinsdale, we don't have G.E. Taylor or Beckham, so it's just uh, still images. So we start with Hugh Gray, Sergeant's photograph, F.C. Adams, Macklin Stewart, Peter Minab, uh, Herman Cockrell, Peter Connor, right through to the end, and even Ricky Phillips is getting my message at the end. So it's right up to date. So it's a 400-page book, and there's new material in it. I cover Roy Johnston. Yep, I know those pictures, yeah. I cover the James Gray sequence of pictures. I, I regard these as genuine photographs of Loch Ness Monster. Did you so include... They go, um, they go I told you that. Did you include the Polish Schumann photograph? Who? The Polish Schumann picture. Nope. Uh, so, what, other made it. what, um, which images do you find the most compelling? You agree? Uh, Peter Manab, Herman Cockrell, Ian Gray, Roy Johnston. I mean, I, I, I assign ratings to each picture. You know, they may give a you go to the cinema, you give a film 7 out of 10, 6 out of 10, 4 out of 10. Well, I do the same for photographs. So if I give a rating of rating of 5 to a picture, then I accept it as genuine. If it goes below 5 or 50%, then I regard it as dubious or fake. What about yeah, the Ryan's uh, uh, flippers? They're in it. What, what is your take on that? There's a mixed pack, that one. Uh, I mean, uh, there's, so, there's, there's an image that obviously we know about the issues with the touched up photograph. So that has to be dealt with. We can't use that as evidence. Uh, I spoke to Marty Klein over the phone a few weeks ago. He's still alive and well. Oh, I, I've uh, spoken to him too. Yeah, he's, he's a good guy to chat with. He gave me a few inputs. He said, just forget about the sonar. So I explained that. Uh, to what we're left with is a, a rather murkier picture, something that looks like a flipper. Uh, the trouble is, uh, you see a flipper because you're used to seeing it from the original, from the touched up one, yeah? <coughs> so that one's really an eye beholder, uh, if you ask me. Yeah. Kinda, I, I'd, I'd give it kind of low 50s as a, a possibility. So it just crosses the threshold for me. But I do accept... Uh, some explanations for it that it's a, a drag mark of the camera rig and I go into reasons why I think that but you do like the long neck picture and the front part of the body from 1975 right I accept that I think most people I think most people that are pro Nessie do 
yeah, Tim Dean still did in his last book, 1982. He still thought there was something to it. Uh, the head, you know something? At the beginning of the interview, I said uh, the 1975 pictures, I saw them as a kid, and I did not accept the head, the gargoyle head, even then. Because I, I just knew from the witness database that no one described a head like that. Well, a lot of people seem to be convinced that the tree trunk from 1987 that was retrieved on Operation Deep Scan is the same object. That's possible. It's not a monster. It so doesn't, It doesn't train with the eyewitness database. So while we've got a few minutes left, why don't you tell everybody about the Ricky Phillips photo? And we'll wrap yeah, up Ricky's, on that. Ricky's latest, latest picture, he, he, yeah, his picture taken in mid-December last year, suddenly looks like a head and neck. It's quite dark given the conditions. It's a blow-up because yeah, he pinched and zoomed and posted it on Instagram. Yeah, what appears to show something that's similar to some sightings like uh, uh, John McLean from So he uh, he stands by it. He saw it. He said it looked like a peacock doing a breaststroke or pheasant, I can't remember. He mentioned this whooshing uh, Darth Vader like uh, deep breathing kind of sound. Uh, he said it's submerged again. He claims outright it's not a branch, it's not a bird, nothing like that. It just was there, then it was gone. So he only saw it for seconds, and I'm not even sure how much of it he saw outside of his camera viewfinder. So uh, that happened in the River Roy, across across the river from where Alex Campbell used to stay by coincidence. Yeah, um, Andy McGrath was recently at Loch Ness investigating that site. Okay, well, Steve Felder's trying to follow up, uh, so I, I invited Ricky to post an article on my blog, because like, I'd like people to engage with the eyewitnesses, because people often regard eyewitnesses as uh, irrelevant. So people have been asked him questions, uh, he's been answering them, people can make up their own mind. Uh, the thing is, uh, there's, no, there's no context in the photograph, it's just zoomed in on, onto the, the water. Now, is the original uncropped image lost? Uh, yeah, it was. Well, you see, uncropped. Uh, he made the viewfinder. He was running his camera. You know, you know, you turn on your camera and your mobile phone and you get the full screen. Yeah. Uh, so he, he was. Angie Pinkston's. He zoomed into this thing and he, it disappeared. He, he snapped it. So, so yeah. there is no uncropped image. I just misunderstood things. But the, the, the full image would have been in, in the RAM of the, 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 the phone. So it was, it was held in RAM, but it wouldn't have been held in the long-term memory. So he lost, he lost the original image. It was lost in his memory. It was lost in the sense that he said his, his memory was full. No I, I, I understand. These things happen. We had yeah, a yeah. we had a problem in 2017. Me and Will Trigenis, something yeah. appeared on the sonar shaped like a plesiosaur, yeah. and he had forgot to put the memory card into the sonar unit. So the only 
thing we could do is very quickly take photographs of the screen. It's the only way we had of preserving the image. And it's just because we were caught off guard and he was still in the process of setting up the sonar equipment and had forgotten to put the SD card in to get a digital screen capture. So these things happen, you know. It's a classic keeping the lens cap on. Exactly, yeah. So, uh, I mean, uh, I I tend to regard Ricky as honest. Uh, I believe he saw something he could not explain. I mean, going going to the actual site is not going to help in terms of assessing the actual picture because there's no background. You know, you could argue it's taken anywhere, but you just have to trust the eyewitness. Well, uh, what, you, what you can do by going to the river is look at the depth. Yeah. Some kind of assessment. One unusual thing I notice about that photograph is there seems to be the head neck-like object, but behind it there's something else. What is yeah. that object supposed to be? Well, Ricky couldn't explain that really either. Uh, I don't think it's anything to do with a creature. I'm not sure what that is. <coughs> well, others, others could offer explanations or opinions. One of the more compelling images that have, has come from Loch Ness in the last few years for me, is that one that looks like a dorsal fin of some kind? Oh, yes. What's your take uh, on that? Jordan Bigger. That's interesting. Uh, it looks like a dorsal fin, doesn't it? Yes, it looks it like looks, the dorsal fin of a dolphin. It looks like something's got to look, a dolphin's got a long neck. So I, 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 I examined that picture. Uh, when, when it first appeared in the Daily Mail, uh, the cropped person, uh, certain people said, well, we can't even be sure it's taking a look at this, and they said it was a dolphin. But when Steve Feldham uh, produced the uncropped picture, it was clear that it was taking a look at this. <coughs> and the person didn't even see it at the time. They'd just taken this picture uh, from, uh, I think, near Inverfarigig, and uh, when they looked at it, this small object could be seen. But thankfully, when you blow it up, you could See this rather odd-looking. It seems to all intents and purposes to be either a caudal, a dorsal, or a caudal fin. Fin. Uh, and when you look at it, the people are saying it looks like an osprey rising from the water of a catching a fish. That looks nothing like an osprey to me. And uh, the other thing is, I I asked. Uh, the local dolphin watchers, uh, one of the marine observation experts uh, along the Murray Firth, uh, what do you think that is? Now, apart from that, they said photoshopping and all that, because you know, they're, they're going to be scheduled. They said that looks nothing like any of the dolphins we know about. So, uh, just by the markings, because it had a white tip to it. Dolphins don't tend to have white tips. So, uh, whether the monster is a dorsal fin, we don't know, because I harken back to the S.C. Adams picture, dorsal fin. Yep, yep. Or could it be part of the tail fluke? We don't know. Plesia thoughts had tail flukes. Some some of them did, yeah, yeah. They've got the the they've got the skin impressions of these plesiosaur tail fins. Yeah, looks like fossilized. Yeah. Um, the other um, the other photograph I find interesting is the one taken by the Indian doctor I can't think of his name off the top of my head 
It looks like some kind of a back. Now, which one's up? What's his name? <clears throat> I can't remember his name off the top of my head, but I was told that he is of Indian descent and he is a doctor. Oh, is that the one that appeared late last year? Yeah, yeah. At Door Speed? Yeah. Yeah, uh, I'm non committed with that. I mean, uh, Steve Verdam lives there. He said he never saw anything. That didn't mean it didn't appear. Well, I know he, I know Steve found some kind of a piece of wood that he thinks might be the object in the picture, but I don't think it's 100% conclusive. Yeah, can't be sure. The thing about yeah. those be is that you have, uh, you have the southwesterly prevailing wind. You know how it's like a wind tunnel? So the, the prevailing wind heads towards doors and it's pushing things up towards doors bay doors bay is a like a full of driftwood and debris so uh, any debris is going to head up towards doors bay uh, in that area yeah i just wish the guy had uh, taken a video instead yeah yeah no one seems to take videos yeah they well, always just go for the default still image which well, is fine because sometimes a video can be quite shaky and bloody. The photographic lost. evidence from Lake Champlain is pretty meager compared to the, all the photographic evidence you have from Loch Ness. Well, do you have less people per square mile? I, I don't really know off the top of my head. I mean, we get half a million people visiting Loch Ness in a year. I mean, yeah. you got to think. And it's smaller, it's smaller than Lake Champlain. Lake Champlain's about four times as long as Loch Ness and half as deep right. but, but you know there may be more eyes on Loch Ness per square meter probably I would think so yeah, I, I have a much more daunting task to cover 120 miles of, of Lake Champlain than 24 yeah. hour, miles of uh, Loch Ness but the thing yeah, that, about Loch Ness is it's so deep it's like a vertical wall of water. Yeah, but that, that's a fault line. It's a fault line filled with water, basically. Well, so is Lake Champlain, oddly enough. And they were both apparently at one time connected to the sea right after the Ice Age, which is significant. Yeah, well, that's how the monster got in. Yeah. Most likely, if there's a resident population... Yeah, but it couldn't, it couldn't have been more than 10,000 years ago because before then, Scotland was under... Oh, I know. Columbia, Same Columbia. deal with Lake Champlain. There were Thumb. glaciers a mile thick covering it. It was a, it was an iceberg. Yeah, but well, during, during the big melt, during the big melt, uh, fresh water everywhere covering Scotland, draining away as the land, land mass rose again, free of the weight of the ice. So that was the point where even saltwater creatures could probably get into the more brackish waters. Well, Bob Rines found fossils of marine invertebrates from that time back in 2001. Yeah, I mean... Clam shells and uh, sea urchin spines. Even Adrian Schein accepts that evidence, so that should tell you something. Yeah, I mean, the lock was much more open to the sea as the, uh, the, as the water melted away. It slowly drained away, and now the lock is 52 feet above sea level. Yeah, so, it's deeper than the, it's deeper than the North Sea around it. It's two, three times deeper. Yeah. 
seven. It's the biggest body of fresh water in Britain. Yeah, and I think the accepted depth by everybody is at least 750 feet deep. Yeah, I'm sure there's deeper parts. Yeah. Probably. But, I mean, below, below that depth, you get silt of varying degrees of depth and thickness. Yeah. The odd earthquake might produce a, open up a deeper depth, because it is a fault line after all. Uh, and I believe there's uh, clefts in the rock, uh, striations. Yep. I yeah. think those are potential hiding places for Nassie, yeah. and under the silt too. Yep, no problem, I believe that. I mean, I think there's, they could, these, these clefts could re lead to caves in some degrees. It's not limestone, it doesn't erode. These are just more like results of geological activity for tremors uh, go back a much longer time. Because that area was an area of high tectonic activity at one time, volcanic. There could be lava tubes and yep. Loch Ness. Yep, absolutely. Uh, rivers. I, would, just I would think that there was a lot of volcanic activity during probably the Mesozoic era. I know that's the case at Lake Champlain. So. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. More to discover. Yeah, so we got about four minutes. Any last things you want to get in? Well, I'm, uh, as I said, about to put the book out. I'll be heading back up to the lock uh, once the winter's passed, April and May. I'll get truck cameras lined up in the lock. I've been snapping away over the winter. I'll go and collect them and see what they've captured. Uh, the good thing is, they only snap things within a 60 foot range. Ah. So if anything big appears on it, there's no doubt what you're looking at. You'll be able to scale it too. Yep. Excellent. Pass by. If I get something big and beautiful on that, there'll be no doubt in it. You'd have to see it as a big fiberglass monster to disprove it. Yeah. So the hunt goes on. Well, best of luck. I'll be going to Lake Champlain this summer too. So, wish me luck. Good luck to you as well. Yep. Good luck to you. So I've really enjoyed this conversation, and there's so much to talk about. I knew we would never be able to get to all of it. So hopefully, at some this point, part, this is part one, Scott. Yeah. Hopefully, at some point, we'll have you back on. And uh, thank you very much for appearing on the program, and it's been a great conversation. No problem. Thank you, Scott. All right. Well, you have a good night. Oh, yes, 10 o'clock. Good night. Thank you, thanks, Scott. Radio brings you The Haunted Sea with host Scott Martis.